Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And if this by chance is the first time you've tuned in, thank you for joining us. This is a very different podcast. We aspire to have real conversations, not typical interviews that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And we hope that these conversations inspire, educate, and yes, entertain you. This is the first in a two-part series featuring two CEOs of recent multi-billion dollar IPOs. Uh, Jennifer Tejeda, the CEO of PagerDuty, will come next. And on this episode, billionaire founder and CEO of Zoom Communications, the amazing Eric Yuan. We have a fun, insightful conversation about what it feels like to have a super successful IPO raise $357 million in that IPO. And now what it feels like for Eric to be um, the leader of a $20 billion plus market cap company. We of course talk about happiness. If you remember, Eric was a very early guest in our prior, uh, under our prior banner of uh, Legends and Losers, and now he's back. Um, We talk about what drives Eric, why he feels like he and Zoom are just getting started and why Zoom's mission means so much to Eric, and much, much more. This is another great example of the power of a real dialogue podcast. The value in a conversation uh, with a guy like Eric, the one you're about to hear, is literally incalculable. And other than you yourself sitting down with Eric and having an hour with him, uh, this is the next best thing. Now, our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data. And Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com today and tell them Lockhead sent you. And our friends at Oracle NetSuite want to help you turbocharge your growth. Go to netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. Also check out lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode. Subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. And now, hey-ho, let's go. I think to be a public company certainly helped our brand because, you know, we have many very large enterprise customers and, uh, you know, they, they definitely helped us a lot on a branding side. But uh, in terms of uh, internal execution, I think, uh, you know, we keep the same culture. You know, we work as hard as before to deliver happiness to our customers. For me as a CEO, my number one priority is to make sure our employee happy. I think from that perspective, I think very little has changed since we became a public company. I remember in our first conversation how much you used the word happiness. And I remember thinking, is this guy for real? Like, <laughs> <laughs> And sure enough, uh, you're not kidding about making your people and your customers and your investors and your ecosystem partners happy. I mean, you, you, you've centered the business on this idea. So you are right. So every morning when I wake up, the first question I ask for myself, do I feel happy or not? I, I encourage the, our employees to ask about the same question. So ultimately, if our employee, if they are not happy, 
I'm pretty sure they cannot deliver happiness to our customers. That's why we keep the same happiness culture here. Well, and I, in, in preparing for our time together today, I did a little bit of homework. And um, I don't know if you know this, on Glassdoor, you know what the um, ratings are for Zoom and for you on Glassdoor, Eric? I don't. I never, ever encouraged our employees to go to Glassdoor to post anything. And uh, that, that's not our focus. Yeah. Well, so just so you know, here's what it says. Uh, on a rating of five, five being the best overall, Zoom is rated by employees of 4.8. And on the question, would you recommend working here to a friend? 95% said yes. And on CEO approval, Eric, 97% of your employees on Glassdoor approve of the way you uh, build and run the business. 97%, Eric. (laughs) I I think based on that data, I should have focused on that 3%. And plus uh, the 5%, you know, why they do not recommend us to. And uh, again, you know, we always like all, all those feedback, right? How to help us to become a better company. Well, I think that's an extraordinary glass door rating. And uh, remind me again, Eric, how old the company is? Eight years old. Eight years old. It's so interesting because um, when we did this analysis for my first book, Play Bigger, uh, one of the things that we looked at was, um, was there any correlation between the age of a company when it went IPO and its ability to produce enduring value as a category king? And we discovered this thing, we called it the the six to 10 law, because all the companies that produced enduring uh, value from a shareholder perspective and that, that were able to maintain a category leadership position went public in six to 10 years. And the enterprise companies were a little bit older and the consumer companies were a little bit less. So you hit it right right on the mark. Thank you. Oh, by the way, that's a great book. And it's one of my favorite books. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Now, I I also have to ask you just on on a personal basis, what does it feel like to have created a company that employees love like this your customers love it. I use it virtually every day. It's an incredible piece of technology, which I, I think is spectacular. And I know, I think you've changed uh, commuting. You've changed uh, the ability to work at home. I mean, you've just changed so many things, teams to collaborate across the globe in a way that wasn't really possible before. I mean, so many, many happy customers. And, um, you know, one of the key dimensions, of course, for rating a success of a business is the creation of, of value. In in eight years, you've created a $25 billion publicly traded company. So when you look at all those things in aggregate, do you ever take a moment to sort of, sort of take stock? And how does it feel to be the founder of this? I truly feel we just started. You look at our user base and our customer base, compared to the 1 billion knowledge workers worldwide. I think we just started huge opportunity ahead of us, how to connect billion knowledge workers worldwide. If you look at the total addressable market, it's also huge. Look at our revenue, you know, we just started. And uh, 
we even do not have time to celebrate the small milestone. We have to work as hard as we can to keep delivering happiness to our customers, to get more users to enjoy using Zoom. I, I love you. You're, you're like, um, I don't know, if you didn't exist. I love here. you too, Chris. <laughs> If you didn't exist, we'd have to invent you. No, you look, it's this is a bit of a side note, Eric, but you know, it's so easy to be cynical. And there's been some negativity around some things in Silicon Valley of late, some of which is deserved, some of which I don't know is deserved. Um, uh, but when I look at you, when I see you, when I see the success you're having, and I know you're such a heart centered leader, um, it really uh, it warms my heart to know that you're there because you're everything that's good about entrepreneurship, technology, innovation, business leadership. Uh, and I would even say uh, immigration. I want to talk to you about that if you don't mind. But I mean, you're, you're a lot of good shit rolled up into one guy. Thank you. Appreciate it for your support. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, it really is inspiring. How many folks at uh, Zoom today, Eric? We have a close to 23 hundreds of people worldwide. Yeah. And uh, what do you think the company will grow to in terms of people over the next uh, year or so? And don't tell me anything that, you know, you're not comfortable I, with. I have no idea, but we do know we are going to hire more and more people to serve our customers in you know, worldwide. You know, we are going to have uh, multiple offices you know, overseas and to serve our international customers. And so if you said that the total addressable market is a billion knowledge workers, uh, have you guys disclosed publicly how many actual users you have? Uh, uh, sorry, I, we, we did not uh, disclose that information yet. Okay. I don't, I don't want to put you anywhere you don't want to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> but need, needless to say, it's not a billion. Yes. Far yeah. way to be a billion users. Yeah. Yeah. And so share with me today what, your vision for Zoom is over the next maybe you tell me three to five years or so as as far out as you can kind of think about it. I think for the possible future, I think we are going to keep doing, you know, what we are doing today, right, to get more customers. But let's say ten years out, we truly believe video communication is a future. Video is a new voice. So meaning in the future. No matter where you are, no matter which device you are using, just one click, you can talk with anyone in the world. And you can speak your language. Other side, they can understand with a real-time translation. If you want to shake hands with others, other side can feel like that. Uh, give you a hug, you also can feel like that. I think that that's a future of uh, communication. So... Uh... If I could sort of play it back to make sure I understand, you really believe, you said, I think you said video is the new voice. Yep. And that by using video, essentially we can bring people uh, closer together and, and have as close to the kind of experience you and I would have if we were sitting down together over a coffee or a beer, um, but do that digitally. Even better than face-to-face -face meeting. Well, now, why you say even better? Say like a face-to-face -face meeting, I do not think, say, if you speak one language, you know, I do not understand that we need a translator, right? With technology, no matter, you know, what kind of language you are speaking, 
and other side can understand that with their own languages. And plus, after the meeting is over, we can automatically generate the meeting summary. And a lot of things, uh, artificial intelligence can empower those online meetings. That's why, you know, for the face-to-face -face meeting, you can never achieve that experience. So it's kind of an outrageous claim, but I hear what you're saying. You think um, you will get it to a place where Zoom meetings are better than anything that you could replicate in a, phys in a physical face-to-face -face meeting for all those reasons and, and potentially others. Right on. That's exactly our vision. And so how far away are we, um, Eric, from uh, me being able to get on a Zoom call with somebody in your home country of China or Japan or Israel or pick your country, uh, and I don't speak their language and, and they don't speak English? Um, how far off are we from that? I think probably five to 10 years out. Yeah. Boy, that's going to change the game, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. So imagine the world where no matter what you say, other side can really understand you without learning a new language, right? They also can have, uh, you know, something like a physical contact, right? Shake hands. I think in the future, if we can leverage the technology to connect the people seamlessly, I think uh, we are going to make, a, make the world a much better place. I think you're, I mean, it may sound corny to some, but I think you're already making the world a better place. Uh, I can tell you that I have uh, friends uh, that I've met primarily through business because I use Zoom primarily in, in my business life, although a little bit in my personal life, but business friends who I'm collaborating with and work with all the time, my, the podcast production team who creates this podcast. Um, uh, and many others who I care deeply about, I enjoy working with, I have general, a general, uh, genuine affection and admiration for, uh, and feel incredibly close to them, um, uh, kind of intellectually and emotionally. And we've never met in person, but because we are with each other, in some cases, several times a week on zoom, um, it, 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 it never even occurs to me that we haven't met in person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so um, is this one of the things that your customers are asking you uh, for? Yes, absolutely. So our customers you know, always told us how they can leverage technology like Zoom and to get the job done, no matter where those people are, right? Essentially, you know, into this world, if you start a business, you really do not need to hire all those employees in one physical location. Your employee can be anywhere in the world and still can get the job done. Yeah. And so uh, that's the uh, evolution you ultimately see for Zoom. Yep. And then last time we talked, uh, it seemed like you were very uh, strongly in the B2B uh, space, in the enterprise space. Um, it seems like, at least from what I can see externally, that's very much the case. Um, so sort of share with me what you're thinking about, um, not just your customers, who your customers are today, but who you think they'll be over the coming you know, few years. I think we started a business from a North American market. Over the past three years, we expanded our business into the international market. Again, you know, our vision is to connect the billion knowledge workers worldwide. And we are not there yet, 
that's still our top part. Hmm, fascinating. Now, uh, and you think you're going to stay focused on B2B? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I've got to ask you about your marketing. I love your marketing. And um, uh, thank you. It, it, it seems, and I mean this in a very complimentary way, there's um, uh, a warmness and even a little bit of a corniness to the whole happy campaign that you've been running for quite some time right now. Can you take me behind uh, some of the thinking around your marketing? Yeah, I think our chief marketing officer, Denis Pelosi, and her team did a great job. And our marketing strategy is not about lead generation and mainly, you know, focus on, focus on making sure our existing customers happy. So we spend a lot of resources on the branding and to make sure promote our brand, to make sure the existing customers, no matter where they go, they always see the Zoom brand. And uh, the goal is to make sure our existing customers happy. And of course, I have to take my hat off to you. Um, it, it may sound obvious to some, I don't know, but you may, must have made a decision at some point, maybe you can tell me about it, that you, you folks wanted to dominate airports. I think this is part of our strategy because, uh, you know, for me, I only travel at most twice a year. I mean, for business travels, right? And a lot of people, they're traveling a lot and they should leverage our technology to reduce their travels. That's good for their family, you know, good for the society as well, right? You know, and otherwise you travel too often, for sure there's some pollution, right? I think uh, that's the reason why we try to promote Zoom uh, across all those uh, uh, very big, you know, popular airports. The other thing I love about what you did with your airport, so th- it's an obvious thing. You'd go to an airport, those are people traveling. Not all of us want to be traveling all the time. So, of course, go to where your, your target customer is, where they might be feeling the pain. It's very smart. The other thing that's smart about it is uh, you executed an advertising strategy around airport billboards that I would describe as dominate or die. You didn't put up one little billboard in like one little airport and, you know, whatever, bumfuck, wherever. You didn't do that. You did giant, the entire wall in New York airports, in Chicago. You know, I mean, when you go to an airport in America today, I don't know about all of them, but certainly some of the major ones, there's no denying Zoom communication. <laughs> You're right. I think our marketing team, they are very creative. And what was it uh, for you as a CEO, particularly as a startup CEO, because you were doing this before you were public and before you'd raised all this money. And, um, you know, you were, you were spending very serious amounts of money on, um, on some of this airport branding. What was it for you as a CEO that said, yes, I, I want to invest money in building our brand in educating our potential customers uh, with this very bold strategy? I think uh, several things. First of all, I trust our marketing team, right? And they come up with that strategy. I think that's very smart. And plus, our goal is to make sure our existing customer happy. And given that we already have so many customers, you know, I think that's a great idea, right? Whenever they travel, we'll remind them of one thing. 
hey, you already have a Zoom, right? Why do you travel that often, right? I think, uh, and plus, we already cash flow positive even be- before we became a public company. I think we do have, you know, resources. We do have, uh, you know, uh, budget right, to spend on, you know, all those uh, advertisements. And if I'm remembering right, Eric, you were cash flow positive after your second or third round of financing. Am I, am I remembering this right? Yes, I think you, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Yeah. Fairly early on. I remember you sharing with me that you had raised at least one, if, if not two rounds before going public, that you didn't need to raise from a cash flow perspective, that you were funding the business yourselves, and, but you kept raising money to build the war chest and, and so forth. Am I remembering this right? Yeah, that's right. And um, um, do you think that um, a lot of CEOs say their lives uh, change a lot by being public, that dealing with investors takes up a lot of their time? And in some cases, for technical founders like yourself, they get less involved with the product and, and, and more involved with Wall Street. So how do you think about um, how you can kind of keep doing the kinds of things that you think are important, that you're super great at? Uh, and yet still be a public company CEO? I did spend a, a lot of time talking with many other public CEOs. I learned a lot, you know, and it really helped me how to you know, navigate through from being a private company to be a public company. I think ultimately, you know, as my friend who is a co-founder and COO of Okata, you know, Frederick, you know, his uh, point is to be a public company it's more like a high school graduation ceremony, right? And you will be a freshman student in the college, right? You, you have to keep working as hard as you can, right? It's just a milestone. I mean, side of that, I think after we became a public company, we celebrated just a half a day. And after that, we're back to execution, right? And uh, again, it's just a small milestone. And what percentage of your time do you think is, is focused now on Wall Street versus the business? Every quarter, we, we are going to have an earnings call, right? We are going to leverage our video webinar to talk with our investors, talk with uh, Wall Street. And after that, you know, our CFO and our head of uh, IR, um, you know, they are going to travel, you know, maybe in the East Coast talk with uh, those public shareholders. And, you know, I do not, you know, uh, join them because I'm very busy and still focused on execution. And then what about the other things that come with this sort of new place that you find yourself in? You know, you are breathing very rarefied air. There are very few founders in the history of entrepreneurship or Silicon Valley who start a company from nothing, get to 25 billion, get to these number of people, these number of customers, build the kind of products that you've built. Um, and I got to believe there's a lot of demands on your time from whether it's big customers or big investors or big partners. And now you get invited to all these, you know, super elite things <laughs> that all the super ding dong CEOs go to the big conferences and you get to hang out with the queen and, you know, the Pope and all this sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of things that now that you're in this club um, that can pull on your time. How do you think about, on one hand, those are some good things that maybe you can leverage and use and learn from and meet interesting people and might be cool. But at the same time, there's a lot of distractions 
um, uh, that come with having the level of success and now the profile that you have? I don't think I changed it that much. And uh, I still hang out a lot with our customers, our employees, spend all the time with my, my kids as well. And uh, for sure, I, I do spend time with other peer CEOs try to learn more from them, right? And I still want to keep the, 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 the older policy where I only travel at most of twice a year. I don't want to join a lot of other events. And, uh, but I think, uh, you know, we got to focus on our execution and anything that will not help our customers, will not help our employees, I'm not going to spend much time. But having said that, I think the, the greater part of the Silicon Valley culture is to give back. I did learn a lot from other successful entrepreneurs and the leaders. And quite often I got some emails from other very young entrepreneurs. I do spend time to help them as well. I think uh, I, I, I have to do that because I benefited from that when I was uh, here in the Silicon Valley. I think uh, that's a great part of the Silicon Valley culture. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's been, a, it's been an amazing thing for me over my life in Silicon Valley to see that. And I'm not surprised to hear that, just give, knowing your personality a little bit. You know, there's this expression I like, which is if, if you get to the top of the mountain, throw down a rope. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Now, I also want to talk to you about um, immigration. I, I've read that when you were trying to come here, uh, you've been in, in the Silicon Valley area for about 20 years. Am I remembering that right? 22 years. 22 years. And uh, if I also remember right, Eric, it was, it was a challenge at first for you to try to get into the United States, was it not? Yeah, that's right. I, I tried uh, eight times. I got my visa a nice attempt. And so, uh, A, what were the, what was the American immigration, uh, what were they saying to you? And B, why did you just keep persisting? <laughs> I never wanted to give up for anything I think I tried to pursue, right? And uh, I, I told myself, hey, as long as you, you allow me to try, I will try for hair work. So until I get that. So, and, uh, you know, it's uh, hopefully, you know, back in the 20, 22 years ago, right? The process is very complex. You know, a small or minor thing, and they might say no. So, and uh, yeah, I, again, I did not give up. So. Well, and I think, look, this is a side note, and I don't want to get very political. Should we be having a conversation about what the United States should be doing at the southern border from an immigration perspective, of course we should. Um, and at the same time, the, the immigration conversation that I don't hear is how come the United States denied Eric Yuan eight times? And more importantly, how can we learn from that so that we are attracting the uh, Eric Yuans of the future? Because, you know, as I said, look, I look, I know it sounds corny, Eric, but I really do think you're the American dream and the entrepreneurial dream and the immigrant dream, which to me are all inextricably linked, all in one dude. I mean, did you ever think when you were a 20 year old engineer uh, living back at home in China, when you were first, I remember you shared with me, you were first reading about Netscape and so forth, and sort of thinking about what a dream it would be to come to the United States. Could you ever imagine yourself today? 
I think, by the way, I think to deny, you know, my attempt for 80 times, it's not a bad thing. That Looking back, that is great. Meaning from the very beginning to practice my perseverance, right? And if, you, if I give up, meaning in the future for a lot of other things, I might give up as well. I think looking back, that's the greatest thing, you know, what happened to me. So where did you learn this perseverance, Eric? I don't, I don't know where. I just didn't know when I was a kid, you know, my, my parents always told me that, hey, don't give up easily. Try hard. <laughs> you're like, um, you're like some, you're a sage. Somebody needs to walk around with you and just write down all this awesome shit you say. Uh, you should have a, you should be publishing books of your sayings, Eric. No, I learned from all others. Learned from my parents, my colleagues, and a lot of mentors. I I I like reading all those great books. I think I just learned from all others. Yeah, well, I think you bring a lot to the table as well. Now, I also wanted to talk to you uh, from a purely product and technology point of view. I think you've done something um, that a lot of people are fascinated by, because you have built what I think a lot of I think creators of any kind, but certainly technology product engineers and builders um, also aspire to. You've built a product that uh, customers love, that is uh, highly, highly reliable, highly, highly scalable, super high quality. I mean, the video we have right now is fantastic. Uh, I've, I've noticed as a podcaster, your audio, you, you're continuously working on it. I would encourage you to continue to do that because we, yep. as a podcaster, we have to compete with, you know, uh, radio stations and major, major media companies. And so the better you can make us sound, the better. Um, but it's very clear to me from a product point of view, you've built a highly scalable, highly reliable, uh, highly secure, high quality product that people really enjoy using. And so tell me how you think about uh, building products. I think to build a product, number one thing is you got to think about everything from an end user, from a customer perspective, right? And you take a, like a Tesla, for example, right? I, I know whoever, you know, bought a Tesla car, they all like that, right? I think uh, you know, like an Apple product, you know, same philosophy. If the customer or end the user, they do not like your product. Nothing will matter. You have to take a step back to really understand what you can do differently to build something better than any other competitors. Make sure customers truly love your product. I think that's the number one priority you know, for you to build a, a, a business. I, I, I did learn a lot from all other companies, you know, Tesla, Apple, all those uh, uh, great companies. You said something that caught my ear there about um, figure out what you can do differently. So why do you th why do you think that is an important piece of it uh, from a product perspective? Because you know, quite often, if you follow the uh, conventional wisdom, right, it's just hey, build a product more like a restaurant, right? As long as you have users, you know, come to uh, your restaurant or they are going to use your product, you feel like uh, you already achieved something. That's not a sustainable because what if other competitors, they come up with something similar? You might lose the business to your competitors unless you build something that can truly make a customer happy. They are very loyal to you. 
they really trust you. That is sustainable. Now, in the case of Zoom, obviously, there were existing products in the market. Um, they weren't purpose-built for the modern technology, um, I don't think. Last time you and I talked about timing and how you felt like you were uh, both late enough and early enough, if I could put it that way, that, that the cloud and mobile and so forth was far enough along for you to build this kind of technology, but you were still very early in leveraging um, the new technology in a way that, you know, GoToMeeting and WebEx and all these other things that we've had for a long time that most of us couldn't stand, um, didn't have. And so how, how do you think about that part? So, you, you know, the reason why I left the Cisco WebEx was that I did not see a single happy WebEx customer, right? That's why every day so many WebEx customers, they switched to our platform. The reason is very simple. You know, your existing customers, they are not happy. Sooner or later, they are going to switch to a better solution, right? We don't want to make the same mistake. Our number one priority is to, to monitor our NPS score to make sure our customer happy. And otherwise, if we do not make our customer happy, guarantee you, very soon, you know, our customers, they are going to switch to another platform, right? I think uh, fundamentally, to build a long-term sustainable business is to make sure your existing customers, they're very happy about your service. Now, it sounds so simple. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's not that hard. But, but so however, many companies get it wrong. No, the hard part is how to build something to make a customer happy, right? That's really hard. But uh, philosophy-wise, I think everybody agrees. So let's go to the product. You know, I've been using Zoom now consistently um, for almost three years. Uh, like I said, almost daily, certainly many times a week. And um, there's a couple things I notice, but here's the big one. You have not jammed this thing full of stupid features. And I don't know if you ever heard that old Yogi Berra saying, Eric, where he said that restaurant is so popular, nobody goes there anymore. And I modified it for tech products to say that product is so feature rich, nobody uses it anymore. <laughs> right. Like it's it, 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 there's certain products you're like, I can't, this was so great three years ago. And now it's like, you forget it. It's impossible. They've just jammed so many features. And so um, how do you think about what to build? and what priorities to focus on when clearly one of the things, one of the big mistakes I, I don't think you're making, which is jamming a whole bunch of stupid features into this thing, which, which would potentially make it very difficult to you. I think, uh, yeah, you're so right. As it's one of the reasons why, you know, our customers, they like Zoom, they drop the other sol solutions to suit to Zoom platform. I think the simplicity is everything. And we cannot deliver happiness to every user, but we focus on the most important customers. Otherwise, if you want to make sure everybody happy, guess what? You cannot make anybody, not anyone happy, right? We focus on the most important use case. And uh, sometimes, you know, some customers, they are not very happy. However, you know, if we can make most of the customer happy, we still want to prioritize those features. And quite often you build a product, 
you know, customer A, they tell you add this feature, customer B tell you add another feature, customer C will have a different opinion. Guess what? You are going to add three features, right, to, to, to serve those customers. None of them will feel happy. Well, and so I think this is a mistake that a lot of um, companies make. And, and, and so how do you know? You mentioned use cases and best customers. Um, listening to a bad customer can really destroy a company, as you know, taking the wrong kinds of feedback from, from, from uh, the wrong kinds of customers. So how did you folks at Zoom figure out, okay, these are the use cases we want to focus on, and therefore these are the kinds of customers we really want to pay attention to, which of course means you're going to pay a lot less attention to different use cases and different customers, which, which can be a hard thing to do. How did you get that clarity? I think, first of all, I don't think that there are bad customers. Every customer, their intention is good. They are trying to help you out. They want to share with you the feedback. However, every time, if you do not take a step back, try to understand what's the exact problem. If you always listen to their solutions, you will have no idea how to build a product to serve all the customers. So from our perspective, we always wanted to understand what's the exact problems customer they are trying to share with us. And then we take a step back to understand why is that. And then we're working together with our customers to come up with a solution. If you always listen to your customers for the solutions, very likely you might have a problem in the future. So that's our philosophy. And what are the main use cases that you that you focused in on to build the business originally? I think, first of all, it's the ease of use, you know, simplicity and a quality with some very you know, innovative features like a virtual background, right? And all those cool features will be listening, listening to our customers. And then we double down on that. Make sure very easy to use, no matter where you are, no matter what kinds of devices, we always deliver a much better quality to you than any other services. And plus, a lot of uh, very cool you know, uh, features, we wanted to be the first one to deliver our solution to our customers. And uh, if we focus on all those three things, guess what? Customer, they will like us. Now, you mentioned the backgrounds, and I'll never forget the first time you came on uh, the podcast. I didn't know that was a feature. And about a quarter of the way through the discussion, your background changed and I started laughing. And so um, that's a, I, I might call it a fun feature or maybe even a little bit of a frivolous feature or a playful, or maybe some might call it a silly feature. Um, but it's certainly, uh, you know, a little bit more fun than, than sort of, uh, you know, the ability to do a recording or have multiple people or, you know, sort of more what I would call core functionality. And so um, tell me about why the, this, this playful uh, feature and how important that's become. Yeah, this is a great example. So several, uh, several years ago, and some customers, they, they told us, hey, they wanted to join Zoom meeting when they were at home, say like in the kitchen or some places, they don't want to turn on the video. Right? I, I, I try to understand why they say, hey, I have a messy kitchen. I don't want to share with others. And that's why we thought about, hey, how about we you know, introduce the feature you know, to hide your background? You know, however, you know, the way for that feature to work is, is you have to have a, a, a green background. 
over the past two years, we made more progress. You know, today, the way it works is that we even do not need to have a green background. And the customer really like that feature. I, I do not think any, any other solutions, they, have, they support this feature yet. This is an innovation. Well, and the thing I love about it, and I think it's a great um, reminder for all of us who care about designing legendary products, that you can add a feature like that, that um, on one hand is serving a purpose. Hey, I don't want you to see my messy kitchen. But at the same time, it's still pretty fun, is, is a little bit silly, is certainly playful, right? And, and the combination of, yes, it has some real utility and I'm sure customers like it for that, but I got to believe customers like it at least equally, if not more than equally for the fact that like right now, it looks like you're sitting somewhere in, in a Hawaiian resort. <laughs> <laughs> so not only that, uh, you know, another very cool feature I also uh, like a lot is, uh, you know, I, I turn on feature where I can touch up my appearance, right? So that's a pretty cool feature as well. So. A lot of uh, you know uh, features are, are built in because of the feedback we got from our customers. So will we have a sort of an augmented reality feature where I can press a button and I'll look a lot more like the rock than I currently do? <laughs> Unfortunately, that feature is not ready yet. So in the future, <laughs> you might. Which is why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, I also wanted to ask you, um, one of the things I know about you uh, because people talk about it in the industry, is um, how what a great job you've done building your leadership team and building your culture. Uh, and of course, at a 97% approval rate on Glassdoor, I mean, your employees have, have clearly spoken. And so could you maybe share with me a little bit, pop the hood on your thinking of how do I create an executive leadership team? And as part of that, how do we as a team come together as a startup, now at over 2,000 people, and create the kind of culture that, that is a place where people really want to work and people love being associated with Zoom? Yeah, so I, I, I think in the startup world, the speed is everything. How to make sure you innovate faster and you move faster, you make a decision faster than any of your competitors, it boils down to trust. If you do not trust your team, if you do not trust your you know, senior executives, quite often you do not know how to make a decision in a timely manner. So for us, you know, to build a, a you know management team, you know, I try to you know work together with those people I know before, or maybe you know referred by some people I really trust, because otherwise, you know, it will take some time to build a trust, and I do not think we can afford that. On day one, ideally, and we already have a trust, right? And everything's open, transparent dialogue. And also for, for any new uh, managers we hired, we also recommend a book, Speed of Trust, to give our employees a framework to learn how to build a trust. Essentially, trust is everything here. Otherwise, I think we are going to have uh, lots of uh, issues and uh, our innovation pace will be much slower. So trust is the foundation for us to build a sustainable business. And Eric, you said the book's called The Speed of Trust. Did I hear that right? That's right. The author is uh, uh, Stephen Covey. Oh, yeah, of course. He's uh -huh. great. And we invited him to join our user conference in Zoomtopia 
last October. Wow, fantastic. That's uh, the speed of trust. So that's been a powerful, that book's been a powerful part of how you've helped to create the culture you want. Yeah, at least that's uh, our, you know, framework, you know, in terms of uh, how to build a trust within Zoom. And what do you do uh, when you have a situation with either an executive or employee where you realize either they're not a good fit or maybe you feel like you can't trust them or maybe they are a good fit and you can trust them, but they're not performing. I mean, because there's, I got to believe you have a high performance culture. You have to produce results as an employee of Zoom. And so uh, how do you juxtapose this? um, I want to be liked. I want people to be happy. You're obviously a very, you know, you have a warm smile. You're an incredibly affable, endearing sort of a guy. You know, you're not one of these Darth Vader-y type leaders at all. But at the same time, um, you know, you're a strong leader and you have to make tough decisions sometimes. So how do you deal with uh, people um, when you're in that situation? So when it comes to a situation like that, you know, we have to be open, transparent. And ultimately, we needed to understand what had happened. Is a pure performance issue or maybe integrity problem? or may they violate our company policy. We have a zero tolerance to integrity problem or sexual harassment. If a pure performance issue, we have to help our employee out and do all we can. If we tried very hard for several quarters, sometimes you know more than two years, we did not see any performance improvement. We have to go through our HR you know, process, right? Because we needed to care about you know, the, the entire business, right? And we are going to terminate it as well, right? So it does not mean we never terminate those employees with the performance issues, but we do not start from the termination. We try all we can to help those people with the performance issues. Yes. It's a very um, pragmatic approach. Be open and transparent zero tolerance on bad behavior. And if it's performance related, we'll work with you. And if we, if you can't sort it out, you're going to have to go. Yep. (laughs) Like almost everything that comes out of your mouth, Eric, it's very simple, very clear, very practical, and very uncommon. If you make the things too complex, you know, if nobody can understand that, how, how you can enforce that, you know, to your team, right? We can't, we have to make everything simple. Yes. Uh, another question I've been dying to ask you, I get asked this question a ton by younger early stage entrepreneurs, which is, you know, all around fundraising. How do we raise money? How should we think about which VCs? Uh, how do we approach VCs, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm always reminded of you. And I try to explain to them a little bit about your story. But, but the, the way I think about it is you started off by raising enough angel and friends and family money to begin to build a business that VCs were attracted to so that they would come to you. And so you, unlike a lot of entrepreneurs, were able to create something of interest and of value and of of potential that allowed or that attracted VCs. And so they came to you more than you came to them. But I'm sorry, with all that said, I'm very curious how you think about fundraising and how you would advise other entrepreneurs. So the, the ideal scenario is to 
raise money from VCs or, or state-run investors. And back to you know 2011 time frame when I started Zoom, unfortunately, no VCs wanted wanted investor to me, and I had no choice but to talk with my angel investor friends. However, I can tell you, it, you know, the pressure is very high. You know, your friends and you raise money for them. You know, what if the business did not take off? I told one of my very large investors, I mean, the early seed investors, I told him, I do have, let's later on, I share, share with him. I do have money in the bank. In case that not work, I will retain those money to my friends. Because the friendship is forever. Right? That's why you try to raise money from your friends. The pressure is very high. And that's why, you know, every day after I raise the three million for my friends, I work as hard as I can. I don't want to let my friends down. Right, and uh, a lot of times I, I do use my own money, you know, for a lot of things. And the goal is to make sure, hey, don't mess up. Those money are not money; those are trust for my friends. So, and later on, we raise money from all those very big VCs, and we 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 keep the same philosophy: don't think every dollar is a dollar. That's a trust your investors they give to you. Don't mess up. You needed to live up to their expectations. Amazing. I also want to ask you, you've done a wonderful job, not only of financing the company, but building a great board. And uh, we recently had Coco Brown on the podcast from the Athena Alliance. And her and I had a fascinating conversation about her perspectives on um, how the board role has changed and how to build a really great legendary board today. So I'm curious to get your perspective. How, do you, how did you think about building your board and how do you think about, um, you know, your relationship with the board and so forth? I think, uh, first, first of all, we did not uh, do a good job in terms of the diversity of our board. And we just had our first female board member a year ago. And uh, I think, uh, in a way to build a, a, a very, you know, functional board is to make sure really focus on diversity, right? If for me, I have a product background, you know, we should have a board member with a sales background, with a legal background, with a finance background, with uh, people with, uh, from multiple background as well. I think, uh, you know, we, we learn a lot. So, and uh, we are still working very hard to try to, you know, uh, make sure and uh, don't make the same mistake. Always have a very diversified board. It's interesting you say that because that was one of the things that Coco said was that um, having board members from different functional areas. So you have a CIO or a chief digital officer from a technology perspective, you have a CMO, you have a CFO, to your point, you have a head of sales. You, and so you represent the key functions of the business with sort of senior people who've been there, done that before. That has that, that not historically been the way people thought about building board. Yep, that's right. That's why I learned a lot from all other, you know, successful, the CEOs, you know, in terms of how to build a, sustainable, you know, functional board. Now, on a personal level, uh, Eric, um, you've been at this working like crazy for eight years. And of course, you had a huge executive and entrepreneurial career before this. Um, if this is too personal, just kick me under the table and I'll quickly <laughs> ask you a different question. But, you know, how do you think about your role as CEO of Zoom and how long you want to stay in the seat and, and sort of your personal situation? And how, how do you think about that? I think I do enjoy 
you know, being a, a startup, you know, a CEO. And uh, I, cause I really enjoy doing that. Every day I work together with our employees to make sure we can, you know, make sure our customer happy. I really enjoy that. And having started that, as long as I have, I still have that passion, I want to be a CEO. And uh, I, I think the work is life. Life is work. I, I really enjoy doing that. Well, I'll tell you, and of course, it's your life. You should do exactly what you want with it. And, and um, uh, as I think everybody should. That, that said, there's something to me, Eric. You know, when I was a kid, you know, my sports heroes were heroes that played on the same team their whole career. You know, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and we're famous for our hockey team, the, the Montreal Canadiens. And many of my heroes of, the, of that era, they played their entire career with one team, you know, and we're going to see this here with Steph Curry, right? We'll, we'll, chances are we'll see him play his entire career and for the Warriors. And the, the, the romantic in me loves that. And so uh, this is getting me to a point, which is there's something great to me about watching a legendary entrepreneur just take a really big, long run, like nail it. And just have a good long run. You know, I just uh, recently saw the Rolling Stones when they came to the Bay Area, you know, and they're in their 70s. I think Charlie Watts might even be 80 now, but like, and they sound better than ever. They're incredible. And you just, part of the joy of it is those guys have been playing together for over 50 years. And there's something about watching that that's extra great. And so I guess my point is, look, you should do whatever you want to do with your life. But I, I just think it's fun that you're eight years in and you're having, you're loving it this much. And uh, long may you reign. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Life is a short. If you can focus on one thing, get one thing done well, I think, uh, you know, you can achieve something. You know, don't focus on too many things. And uh, I found my passion. I do enjoy that. Now, Eric, I want to be super respectful of your time. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, my friend? Oh, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Every time I enjoy talking with you. I do learn a lot and I really appreciate it for our time. Thank you. Well, uh, I'll spend as much time with you as you ever want to spend with me. And I want to thank you, Eric. I think you are spectacular. I really appreciate you spending time with me. And most importantly, um, I really hope and I, that people understand, um, you know, what you represent, because I think you, you represent everything that's awesome about entrepreneurship and you're a very inspiring guy. Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate thank you. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with the incredible Eric Yuan as much as I did. Now, um, are you planning for legendary success like Eric's? Uh, now, being legendary means, amongst many things, knowing your numbers. And today, more than ever, you want to be on top of the seminal growth numbers that drive your business. Imagine having every critical number you need to manage and grow your business on your smartphone anytime, anywhere. That's what my friends at NetSuite make happen. And with some powerful dashboards, you can stay on top of every component of your business, sales, finance and accounting, orders, inventory, and even HR. And interestingly enough, 65%, approximately 65% of the tech companies that have gone public lately run NetSuite. And now NetSuite is available to you and it's surprisingly cost effective. Check out netsuite.com different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. That's netsuite.com slash different. Uh, because when you know your numbers, you know your business. And when you know your business, you can get growing. So check out netsuite.com slash different today. 
All right. We would like to thank Eric Yuan and his legendary company, Zoom Communications. You can check them out at zoom.com. OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My new podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. It's quite different from this podcast. It's short snippets. Most episodes are 15 or 20 minutes or less on ideas that you can put to work, strategies and mindsets for how to do legendary marketing. Check it out at lockhead.com or wherever you get legendary podcasts. My friends at bottleneck.online want to help you scale yourself with the power of a virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online today. And uh, growwire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurial people are reading. Check out growwire.com. And uh, if you love marketing as much as I do, why not check out my friends at the Marketing Journal at the Marketing Journal, marketingjournal.org. And if you're in Australia and you want to do legendary marketing, check out rapidmedia.com.au. That's rapidmedia.com.au for legendary marketing in Australia. And try not to forget about my friends at Habitat for Humanity. Their vision is of a world where everybody has a place to live. Check out Habitat.org today. All right, I need to remind you that uh, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. Our listeners report that uh, 80% of them report that they heard about this oddcast from a friend. So I want you to know I deeply appreciate when you tell people and when you share this oddcast. All right, do remain perturbed. Warning, this oddcast goes way better with libations. Uh, you can find us at lockhead.com. If you must email us, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Uh, support global happiness. Don't forget to buy John's crazy socks. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to Joan Jet, And don't forget, happy chickens make healthy eggs only by pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of the board at Pacific Gas and Electric. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. And until we're together again, follow your different. 